0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Taking a few sensitive meetings is Kelster's chief investment officer, Mr. Christopher Allman. Chris, on MIFID, on the changing of expenses for research, on what guys like you are going to pay for research, where are we going to be in one year?
1: Yeah, it's going to be an interesting question, Tom, because a lot of people are wondering what really is the value of that research? Uh, we already pay for some independent economic research services. We pay for geopolitical research services uh, because we found that the street doesn't do a good job on that. Um, but I'm really going to be interested. We've been out of soft dollars, as yeah. it's called in the USA, for over uh, about six years now um, and have really limited the use with our managers. So I'm not quite sure how the USA is going to navigate what happens in Europe. Right. but. You know, if it's really a value, then you should be willing to pay okay. for it.
0: This is incredibly important, folks. And if you're not part of Global Wall Street, trust me, there's all this other stuff going on. The president just tweeting about the NFL. We'll get to that in a moment. Chris Elman, you are way out front on where the regulators want to go. If the regulators get the wish, if we see research diminished, does that drive people to passive investing?
1: Well, Tom, I don't think that you know, people uh, that rely on Wall Street research uh, are really just using it as a guidebook. What I think is going to happen in the future, you'll see a bifurcation. The real quality research analysts will go to independent services, and, they'll be pay- and they'll be, people will be willing to pay for that. So there's still going to be active management, because a lot of the active managers like to do their own work anyway. Um, Will it drive more people to passive? Frankly, I hope so, because the amount of 401k money in the USA alone, it needs to be in passive because otherwise active management is not beating the cost it charges and therefore there's no value add.
2: Good morning from Milan, Chris. Do you worry about a lot of
3: hedge funds taking big position on the markets and therefore um, the market's almost being distorted by all this you know, passive money? And if that changes, does it, you know, is there a correction coming that could be quite ugly?
1: Well, good morning from Milan. So good to see you again. I don't believe that the, the passive money is actually distorting the market. Uh, I think that it's just it's actually creating some stabilization and the numbers that we've seen, there's more money following indexes than before. But what we're seeing is a market that's actually fairly quiet because there's not a lot of people swing trading in it. And the hedge funds that have been in and out of the market, um, it's really the leveraged ETFs that have an impact. I don't think it's going to cause a significant change in trading habits. If we have a bear market, it's really going to be signaled due to the economy. Um, due to some kind of a recession, some kind of a regulatory or a tax law change. We'll see if we get the same as tax law. They've been so successful so far, I I guess I have to have hope for the tax change. But, you know, I don't foresee that this market's really uh, in the internal dynamics of the market look okay. It's just priced to perfection, and it could stay that way for a considerable period of time. And I don't think hedge fund activity is going to trigger that recession
3: what would trigger actually a readjustment of the market? Is it central bank policy? And if yet, do we know
2: how the markets would function without all of this free cash out there?
1: Well, Francine, that's the, the million-gazillion-dollar question. I have been asking all of our economic services, what is that trigger point? Certainly it could be a Federal Reserve policy action. We've seen that before, like in '94, when the Fed moved too quickly, too fast, surprises the market, triggers a, a trade-off. We've also seen it where there's a change in federal policy that causes the economy to stumble. We've also seen it where there are international geopolitical events that cause consumers to lose their confidence. So it could be any one of those, and I, don't, I can't tell you that there's a particular action to look for to gauge. And the challenge is this could go on for a week, but it could also go on for another two years. So you don't want to be out of this market but I'm, I'm very cautious in not, not wanting to be overweight the market and bet too much.
0: Chris Hellman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your effort from Berlin today. He is Kelser's chief investment officer. We're gonna have an adult conversation now about oil and along the way, we'll explain the jargon. As we go, I think there's been something missing in the discussion. You can do that when you've got someone as smart as Michael McGlone uh, joining. He's with Bloomberg Intelligence with uh, uh, decades of uh, learning the humility of trying to game where oil's going to go. I saw OPEC Resolve open for Def Leppard a few years ago. They were a great band, and you're talking about the way they got the name, OPEC Resolve. There used to be OPEC Resolve when Hysteria came out you know, 30-some years ago. Where's the OPEC resolve today?
4: <laughs> well, that's a good lead, and um, I've definitely lost my hair trying to figure out the oil market, but um, I think the key thing from OPEC is j- the jawboning. They know what they have to say to get the market up, whether they're doing it or not. They still that's have power to jawbone. Yeah, well, they do. I mean, they're still producing over one-third of the world's oil. I mean, not much of it's exported to the U.S. anymore, but they still, that's one-third. Now, that's, their power is definitely diminishing. But um, Mm -hmm. they they still – and the difference is they all need money. We know that. But, I mean, Saudi Arabia is a key factor and they know they have to cut back a little, get the oil price up. And so far it's working.
3: When, when you look at um, sort of the, the spread here between Brent and, and WTI, what does that tell you at this point? How I, you, <laughs> uh, what what happens when it's as wide as it is? Hurricane distorted. Typically, okay.
4: right now it's um, it's a bit of a bullish sign because it's distor- distorted by a hurricane. I don't think we you know we have to get U.S. exports back online, and they're coming fast add to that the, the declining dollar, and it's just a pretty good bullish situation for U.S. WTI catching up to Brent at the moment. The key point is right now I look at it as a percent. It's about 12% that Brent's above WTI. The last time we were this wide was right at the bottom in the underlying market in February 2016. So it's it can it can mark peaks and trials in the market, but here I'm just thinking, looking at it as it's an indication that WTI is just getting a little too cheap.
3: You've, you've written a lot about this, the, the role that the dollar plays. Here commodities appear to have been waiting for some dollar backfill. It may be uh, commencing. I- explain the role here of, of the dollar, weak or strong, uh, in oil prices.
4: Well, right now I think initially the commodities were a bit of a shock mode. I mean, it, the dollar is down eight percent in the year, and almost all indices you look at, which is one of the worst years in in forty. And it's overdue for a bit of a back and fill. We know that. But every day that goes by that it's just kind of backing up a little bit. The market's getting it. The dollar has likely peaked. So if you look at it simply, at the end of the year, if the dollar is unchanged, it's down 8% of the year. But the commodity mm-hmm. market is still basically unchanged. So that's got to catch up. And crude oil and I think and all commodities are doing that. Gold, definitely. Metal's number one.
0: Okay, and now we go, folks, to clear the jargon, which we would take pride in its surveillance. <laughs> Let's begin with backwardation. What is backwardation?
4: One of my favorite terms. The key, the key point to remember about backwardation is it's when that front futures contract is higher than the backs. November
0: is higher than next June.
4: Exactly. Or I like to look at it as one-year basis. A simplistic way to look at it is November now versus November a year from now. Okay. One year is the best way to measure across all commodities because <clears throat> there's no seasonality. So if you look at futures a year from now on all the petroleum products, they are 4% lower than okay. current, but current prices. 4% higher. That's the most extreme backwardation since is 2014. it's only
0: because of Harvey.
4: Well, no, part of it is generally backwardation means more demand versus supply. It means there's demand So in it's the a front more macro,
0: bigger Marshallian thing.
4: Exactly. Exactly. And it's also the key thing to remember. It's kind of a forward-looking way of looking at the market. Now, we get supply and demand data. Yeah, that's a backward measure. The curve's forward-looking. It's basically a positive okay. factor.
0: And then right critical with backwardation, is it a bet typically that the near term is a higher price or is it a bet that the year out price is lower? It's, it's – Asymmetric, It's got to be an overweight to one of those, right?
4: It, it's more of an indication that demand is greater now versus supply, and it's that much that's taking that carry okay. out of the market. So it's just an indication right. of d- greater demand now, and often sometimes if <clears throat> it gets too much extreme, right. it could lead the other way. Now, getting, I think we're getting close to that. Right. 4% John Tucker, is
0: pretty good. was that good enough to keep Al from New Jersey happy?
3: I think what he said is, I want my oil, and I want it now. <laughs> yeah, well, this is from the gentleman that
0: drives a Hummer, too. David, I insist you— ask about contango
3: oh my gosh can we do a jargon on a jargon yeah. alert jargon explanation of contango
4: and what what it is well, contango is the opposite. As we know, it's when the front price is lower, further out prices. That's just normally priced in the carry. So the that's market. normal. Of, that's normal. And think of crude oil. It's expensive to store. So right. that's got to be priced thing. in the – it's thing, and you can't store it on your finger like you can gold. Sure. I mean, it, it's volatile. It's it's dangerous. So it's got to be in the price. When you take that out in backredation, okay. that's a sign of demand. So if you look at petroleum a year ago, it was 6% in contango oil, and that was a sign that we were pretty well supplied. Now it's the opposite. Demand is great. But the
0: key idea here is contango is normal and the backwardation now is the odd thing. Final question can non tangibles like treasury futures, et cetera, can they do these two things?
4: Treasuries in the futures curve are completely priced off the forward short-term interest rates. So they do, but that's not an indication of supply and demand. It's okay. like gold. It's just the exact cost of that carry.
0: Okay, have we exhausted this out? Taylor Riggs is taking notes <laughs> on this, David, to get through CFA Level 3. Did we, did David, I think we just killed that.
3: Well, we can move on. To no, other one, on go, yeah. no
0: one worldwide, yes. with Michael McGlone, has done a better discussion. of be- Gartman is down in Virginia in tears over this right now. One of my big heroes, did- De- Dennis Gartman <laughs> is in tears over that discussion of backward is backward uh- Accredation and contango. David, David, Good morning, Dennis
3: Gartman. Uh, Let me ask you about other commodities. We talked about the effect of the hurricane on on the oil market. What about other uh, commodities? I know there was concern uh, around Harvey, around Irma, about cotton uh, in particular in the South. Have we seen other commodities take a hit as a result of those storms?
4: Well, the number one was cotton. Lumber is partly in there and orange juice. The key thing of all those three commodities, cotton is the only one that's worthy of being the Bloomberg Commodity Index because it's the only one that has decent enough trading trading volume. It's so much significant. It's still one of our major exports in this country. But it's come back. Cotton has just oh, well, still well supplied despite the fact it get distorted by the hurricanes. In the big picture, it's more um, this distortion in, in, in crude oil I think helped spark this rally because it took – it flushed out some of those weak longs and then boom. Now it goes right back to where it should be going.
3: How much better are we at, at forecasting? We talk about weather and the role that it can have – Uh, on commodities here in the US and uh, and around the world. uh, Do we see a more nimble commodities commodities market than we have in the past? Well, the first thing I think of in weather is the grain market, the
4: US grain market. And this global warming situation was supposed to hurt US grain supply. It's done the opposite climate change has added a massive amount of, yes, it's heated up in the, the temperature, a little, but it's added moisture to the grain belt. For instance, look at this year. August was one of the coldest Augusts in 100 years, but it wasn't, and so it's just been adding the volatility and moisture. So we've had five years of bumper crops. The question is, at some point, that's got to end, and the grain market is an area I see very much brewing. It just needs a little bit of, basically, it needs a, a dry August, and we had the opposite last this August.
3: Let's close here by talking about gold. I know you're you're watching gold here as we approach the, the end of the month. What are you looking at uh, in particular? What will the, the close of gold here at the end of September tell you about the about the commodity?
4: Key pivots 1300. Bottom line with gold is it's a much better founded market than it was a year ago. It failed right after the September meeting. It declined 10 percent this year it's the number one factor behind yeah. it. its declining dollar. and if uh, the dollar unless yeah. the dollar really reverses gold, has a, a been to it? It was
0: a September meeting. No, gold failed at the February 14th meeting.
4: <laughs> well, look at gold in this tightening cycle. Gold has actually outperformed the S&P 500, and people don't really get that yet. And during the entire tightening cycle, it's about about 23% up. S&P 500 is up about you know, the same. I,
0: we make jokes about it, folks, but what you just heard there was the clearest exposition. Mm-hmm. I've, I've ever heard on degradation and contango. That was brilliant. People, seriously, people flunk exams on this stuff. What a public service. Michael McLoon, uh, giving us perspective here from Bloomberg Intelligence on some of the pro talk and discussion that you hear in the commodity markets at Bloomberg. Uh, that oftentimes in the media gets thrown around like mince. David, that was great. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, not, his work I'm not. This successful on the I, Bi go. I can I can fake it like anybody. But, you know, <laughs> McGlone's the real deal, so that really works.
3: Terrific. Thank oh, you very I, much, Mike just, McGlone, uh, the Commodity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence here on in Bloomberg 1130 Studios in New York. For a long time, he represented Maryland's 8th Congressional District. He moved on to the Senate when Barbara Mikulski retired. He is the junior senator from... Uh, Marilyn, Chris Van Hollen joins us now on our phone lines. And there's a lot to talk about this morning from health care to tax reform and the deficit. Uh, Let's start with health care, if we could, Senator. Uh, We heard from Senator Susan Collins yesterday. She does not intend to support the bill known uh, as the Graham-Cassidy bill, a a revision to uh, the Affordable Care Act. I wonder what kind of conversations you've had with Larry Hogan, the governor of your state of Maryland, about health care and about this bill in particular.
5: Well, Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, has come out against uh, this bill. It would be very harmful to Maryland, as it would to most states around the country. And, in fact, every state would be badly hurt in the in the out years when Medicaid would face an absolute cliff uh, beyond a decade from now and between now and then it does eliminate the, the guarantee for protections against things like pre-existing conditions and eliminates the guarantee of essential benefits. So uh, that is why you've seen every patient protection group in the country come out against it, all the nurses, doctors, hospitals. So I'm, I'm very much hoping that this is uh, defeated uh, once and for all and we can get back to the uh, bipartisan discussions about how we can improve the Affordable Care Act and the health care system.
3: Yes, Senator Van Hollen, I'm curious about the status of those bipartisan discussions. I know that Lamar Alexander has been working on a bipartisan bill with the, the, your colleague from, from Washington State. Uh, and, and I'm curious here just to what it looks like on Capitol Hill when a piece of legislation like Graham Cassidy is being worked on and, and worked through. Is the door open for Democrats to, to join the discussion or is this something that's really happening on a parallel track, a different track uh, from everything else?
5: Well, once the Graham-Cassidy initiative uh, really started, uh, the Republicans in the Senate dropped the bipartisan negotiations. Uh, They essentially ended at that point. Uh, You had a situation where the Trump administration and the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, and then Republican leader Mitch McConnell uh, decided to go back to the effort to blow up the Affordable Care Act. And at that time, those bipartisan ended, which was why I'm hopeful that if we're able to defeat uh, Graham Cassidy, uh, that we will resume those negotiations, which I understand from both sides uh, we're making progress.
3: Making progress. What are the, the areas of commonality? In other words, if you get back to the negotiating table with Republicans, what are things that you think need to change where you think uh, Democrats, Republicans can, can come together? Is, is there unanimity? Is there agreement here uh, that parts of the Affordable Care Act need to be changed?
5: Yes. I think everybody agrees that the Affordable Care Act uh, needs changes. So the main things that were on the table were uh, making permanent uh, the cost-sharing provisions uh, so that there would be some certainty in the marketplace uh, that they would be there. Uh, The lack of certainty has created some wild fluctuations uh, with respect to premium offerings, even as we head into this fall. Uh, There was was an effort at reinsurance uh, provisions uh, so that Uh, There would be some relief for the very high-cost patients um, that really drive many of the the costs that uh, are faced. And then there was a discussion about more flexibility in the Medicaid waiver uh, provisions. States already have a lot of flexibility, but Mm there have been complaints about the amount of time that they get. Uh, how, how the amount of time it takes for them to have their proposals reviewed and uh, implemented. So uh, that was a package coming together in the Senate. Now, whether or not that would pass in the House is a whole different question.
0: Senator, you have leapt into the leadership of the Democratic Party in the Senate. It's a hugely dynamic time. And if we could turn over to the mundane politics of the moment you're managing for the 2018 election with the DSCC, trying to get it done against some difficult math. Are you impatient that you need to see a new Democratic Party now, or can it wait till after the midterm elections?
5: Well, I'm not sure quite what you mean by a new Democratic Party. I mean, in this cycle, even a few months ago, uh, the Democrats put forward a, a lot of ideas with respect to uh, jobs uh, in the economy it's understandable that that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention because the focus has been on what's going on in the Congress right now, which is controlled, of course, uh, by Republicans in both houses. So uh, I think for the midterms, you're going to see primarily a referendum on the Trump administration and the conduct of the uh, majority in the House and Senate. That's been the traditional pattern of midterms. But at the same time, we will have our senators, our incumbent senators, uh, you know, in every one of their races talking about Right. what's best for their state. And of course, our challenges will be and doing the same thing.
0: You are in the crosshairs of this debate. You're not sitting on the couch in the Oval Office, but you're in the crosshairs of this debate. Do you desire, in terms of a new Democratic Party, the same old, same old, and let's call it a progressive party of the two coasts? Or does it have to be a Democratic Party that, that pays homage to Michigan, to Wisconsin, and to other areas, other rural, less sanctuary city areas?
5: Well, however you define uh, the Democratic Party, we absolutely have to do a better job of connecting with voters in every part of the country. It's very clear from the last uh, presidential election uh, that many voters uh, who had supported uh, Democrats in the past who had voted for uh, Barack Obama uh, decided to vote for Donald Trump uh, because uh, he somehow persuaded them uh, that he had their best economic interests uh, in mind. And so Uh, The Democrats have been very clear uh, since the end of the election that uh, we need to refocus our efforts on what the Democratic Party has always stood for, which is the chance for everybody uh, to have a good-paying, decent job and a a good future. So to answer your question, yes, we need to do a a better job of connecting with voters. And a lot of the Senate races that we've got up this time are in the areas you've talked about, and we have – incumbent senators who who have been very successful uh, at making it clear that they're looking out for the best interests of their states.
3: A few weeks back, I imagine a copy of The Washington Post landed with a thud outside your office in the Hart Senate office building and, and many others on Capitol Hill. John McCain, your colleague from Arizona, writing about comedy on Capitol Hill about bipartisanship, about regular uh, order. And I wonder uh, how you process what he wrote in that op-ed piece and, and how you process what he said in his statement about uh, why he doesn't intend to, to, to vote for Graham Cassidy. Yes, it has to do with some aspects of the bill, but it also has to do with the way things are uh, proceeding on Capitol Hill uh, right now. There's, there's his encouragement to get back to regular order. What's it going to take to get there? What's it going to take to get back to bipartisanship and, and the, the traditions of the U.S. Senate?
5: Well, I applaud Senator McCain for calling out the Senate to get back to the regular order. You mentioned that I'd been in the House, and now I'm in the Senate, in my first term. And you know, one of the one of the hallmarks of the Senate in the past uh, has been the idea that people can work together to get things done across party lines. In fact, the rules are structured to encourage. Uh, That kind of compromise. So I really uh, hope we're able to do it. Uh, The healthcare debate has been very polarizing, as we've seen, which is why I'm hopeful that if we can defeat uh, this Graham Cassidy proposal, that we can get back to those Alexander. Uh, Murray talks that uh, you referenced. I hope we can do it in other areas. I always thought modernizing our infrastructure uh, would be an area where people could come together. You know, that shouldn't be a Democratic or Republican or any other uh, issue. Uh, And so that would be a fruitful area, I think, for discussion. Uh, Tax reform uh, is an area where it's possible to have bipartisan a cooperation, because I think there's general agreement that, you know, we got a lot of junk in the tax code and it can be simplified. How you do that, of course, uh, is a whole other debate, and I guess it's one we're going to have soon.
3: I hope we can have it here. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Don't it's be wonderful. strange. We'd love to have you back uh, again so we can talk a bit about tax reform, uh, if you're so inclined. Senator Chris Van Hollen, the junior senator from Maryland, joining us. David Gray here with uh, Tom Keene, Bloomberg 1130 Studios uh, in New York, Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio, continuing to talk about a number of big stories today as we look at to Janet Yellen speech at 1245 Wall Street time, speaking at the NABE conference uh, in Cleveland. We'll be carrying that for you live here on Bloomberg Radio at Presidential Press Conference this afternoon. Uh, as well. And uh, focusing also on what's happening legislatively on Capitol Hill, a conversation about health care reform continues, so does the conversation about uh, tax reform as well. And uh, in just a moment, we're going to be joined by Kathleen Sebelius. She's the former U.S. Secretary of Health uh, and Human Services. She'll be on our phone line, forgive me, in our studio, our Bloomberg Nine Nine One studio in Washington, D.C. Secretary Sebelius, let me ask you, first of all here, just about where we go from here? Uh, Indications seem to be that the Republicans do not have the support they need to get this particular piece of legislation, Graham-Cassidy through. Uh, Where do we go from here? There's talk of bipartisanship. We heard it from Senator Van Hollen a few moments ago here on the show. Uh, What what does a bipartisan approach to health care going forward look like?
2: Well, I think if the Graham-Cassidy bill is either pulled from the floor or fails to get the majority in the Senate, uh, it's really important to act quickly on some kind of bipartisan solution because eight – we're about six weeks away from open enrollment 2018 under the existing law – which means that insurers have to know that the law will be followed, that actually the administration intends to enforce the IRS penalty, that they will indeed pay the um, cost-sharing subsidies uh, to insurance companies as the law it outlines, so insurance companies can participate in the marketplace. And then the administration hopefully will change course and actually – inform people that open enrollment is approaching, have people available to help on the ground um, instead of the really continuous sabotage that's underway. I think Chairman Alexander and Senator Murray are working hard. They've had hearings where governors have come in, insurance commissioners have come in, others to talk about three or four steps that need to be done very quickly to stabilize the existing market and make sure that The people who buy marketplace coverage uh, in the individual market have choices Mm -hmm. going forward.
3: Secretary Sibelius, I look at the commentary surrounding this particular piece of legislation. There are a lot of people saying uh, Republicans talked a lot about repealing the Affordable Care Act but never had a solution to, to put in place. As you look back on these last few years, few months, few years, has there been uh, anything proposed by the Republicans you thought had a chance of, of making it through here? And, and when we look ahead to bipartisan solutions, uh, what are the things they've proposed that you think uh, have legs that need to happen when it comes to health care in this country?
2: Well, both the original House and and Senate bills um, had uh, some kind of stabilization fund uh, that would be applied at the state level, particularly in states where um, there is not enough coverage and participation by companies. I think that's a very good idea. Uh, The original law had risk-sharing pools, had an ability to balance risk state by state, um, that was not funded intentionally by Congress. So a stabilization fund uh, administered at the state level by insurance commissioners uh, would, I think, make the market not only more secure but also hopefully prompt competition. I'm a, I'm a market believer that more competition actually is the best rate um, restrictor – and what we need to do is make sure that people have choices of a couple of different companies. So that's a, that is a very good idea. I think just telling the insurance companies what the rules are. This, again, is a private sector plan run by insurance companies in each state. The products licensed are not only selling marketplace products for those who qualify for Obamacare mm. subsidies, but they also sell insurance products oh. to – farm families and and mom-and-pop businesses and um, families who are buying their own coverage, Mm. it's really important that that market doesn't blow up. And that's really at risk right now. So what are the rules? Insurance companies will then sell products in those states.
0: In the short time we've got left with you, and we'd love to have you come on and spend more time with us, we learn in civics that Kansas is worth studying. (laughs) You have lived Kansas. Your father-in-law, I believe, was first uh, district Congress. He was. There's all that crazy... Roberts' relationship over the years, what's the state of Kansas right now, to borrow from an acclaimed book? I mean, after all the tax work and the turmoil of all Republican Kansas, you're Democrat, what's what's the state of your Kansas, Governor?
2: Well, I think it's important that people actually take a really hard look at Kansas. So yeah, uh, Senator Brownback came back, ran for governor, was successfully elected, and then put in place a tax plan that I think will look eerily like what's being proposed at the federal level. It, it sounds like all the hallmarks of what the Trump tax plan may I- include. Uh, it can, has can been a total mon- economic disaster Can you in print Kansas. money
0: in Lawrenceville? Uh, I mean, can, do
2: you have a, a, a printing press there? We do not have a printing <laughs> press. We have to work on a balanced budget. And the tax framework has been such a disaster that a Republican legislature finally no. got rid of the plan and overrode the governor's veto because the state is in economic turmoil. No. So we need to pay attention okay. to that. We need to pay attention to, you know, what what happens when A Democrat gets elected in a Republican state and actually can get some things done. So we do have a good bipartisan
0: history. Here's what we're going to do. Governor, I please promise that she'll come back to our Washington (laughs) studios. Mr. Gura will spend an hour with you or more. There's that much to talk about, about Kansas as well. Kathleen Sebelius, of course, on our politics. Stay with us coast to coast and in Kansas. This is Bloomberg.
3: Pleasure to bring in now somebody who knows the history of and principles of uh, American philanthropy better than uh, anybody else. That's Joel Fleischman, professor of law and public policy at Duke University, the author of a new book, "Putting Wealth to Work: Philanthropy for Today or Investing for Tomorrow." It's great to have you with us here uh, in. New York. I could wander a few blocks south of here to 42nd Street and look at that Kevin Roche building the Ford Foundation constructed, uh, full of people working hard on any number of issues, but also a monument to a, a certain kind of foundation. And central to your book, Joel, is uh, attention in philanthropy today. Do you build a monument like that, an institution like that, or do you in your lifetime decide to spend off the fortune that, that you've made? How do we get to the point where we're at this turning point, where, where, where those who have been blessed with a lot of money have to make that decision?
6: I think the re- we're, th- we're at that port largely because a lot of of people have made a lot of money when they were young, and therefore they would like to translate into a public. Uh, impact, the same kind of impact they had in building their companies. I think that's the reason we're, the, we're where we are at this point.
3: You use the word impact, and there is a trend uh, that I can pick up in philanthropy today to measure impact. Yes, if You look at a foundation like the Gates Foundation, very data dependent. Uh, foundations want to see that the money that they're putting towards something is being used as best as it can be uh, used. Is that necessarily a good thing? Can we measure everything with metrics?
6: The answer is you can't measure everything with, with metrics, and most of the good foundation people know that. On the other hand, you should measure what you can measure. Uh, and those things which lend themselves to metric, metrical measurement mm-hmm. to do it. Qualitative measurements are also very good. So the answer is, it's, it's, it's fine to do both. Uh, but you, what you don't want to do is to say we're not going to do anything because it can't be measured,
0: because some of the most yeah.
6: interesting things have, in fact, been done that can't be measured. A
0: small-time foundation charity player, one D. Rubenstein of Carlisle <laughs> Group, says, shut up and read this book. What I love about your effort, Professor, Putting Wealth to Work, is it's hugely accessible – We have foundation-itis today, and you beautifully write about the reality of trustee fatigue. What is trustee fatigue, which is a clear and present danger? Yes. What is trustee fatigue
6: is that foundations and, and, and many, many smaller foundations have the problem of their trustees basically have gotten tired of what they're doing. Basically, because either there's not enough money to justify what they're doing or mm-hmm. or it is simply a fact that they've got
0: they've, they've gotten bored or they may be family. OK, problems. so yeah. John Tucker here has a twenty three million dollar foundation, small potatoes. Yeah. He sets it up yeah. and his grandchildren are going to get fatigue over it. Yes. Where's the money go? The money has to go to a charity.
3: Simple as that.
6: Yeah, it's as simple as that. Uh, either, either it under under the terms of the in, in Internal Revenue Act, once you set up the foundation, anything that happens to that money has to be charitably certified, basically. We've seen another Got trend here. Two.
3: That is, to the record, I'm not bored. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of these set up as 501c3s, we're seeing a movement into other configurations. Uh, has the notion of a philanthropy, what it is under the tax laws and just in general changed here? We're, we're seeing LLCs, for instance, when it comes to, to philanthropic enterprises.
6: Right. The answer is uh, yes and no. I mean, the, the major, major events in the, in the sector, such as the donor advised funds, is a very good example. The assets held by all the private foundations is somewhere around $700 to $800 million, billion to 800000000000 dollars the, 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 the amount of money in the donor-advised funds, cumulatively at the last time the figures were reported, was $70 billion. So you've got 10% of what the foundations hold in, in donor-advised funds. That's all happened since 1991. Uh, and, and the consequence is many people use it. Even foundations use donor-advised funds they, they, in order to facilitate. If they can't get the money out the door as quickly as they'd like to, they've got the donor-advised funds where they can simply write a check.
3: I started off by asking you about uh, the Ford Foundation, mentioning the building down on 42nd Street. And let me use it here lastly just to ask you about the moment that we're at right now. Under Darren Walker's leadership, we've seen a rethinking of what that foundation in particular does. Are we seeing that more broadly, Uh, introspection in the philanthropic sector about – what philanthropies can do and how best they can do it.
6: Absolutely, uh, the, the, the many foundations are doing it. They're not moving with great alacrity, I should tell you. Uh, for example, impact investing foundations have not done anywhere near. They've not moved as rapidly, f- for example, uh, as. The for-profit businesses, J.P. Morgan, has moved a lot faster in impact investing mm-hmm. than any of the foundations have. But some of them are coming along. The yeah. Ford Foundation said that now it's aiming yeah. towards spending, putting 10 percent of its assets in that. The Kresge Foundation has decided right. to put 10 percent of its assets in impact mm-hmm. investing. But but it's, it's a very slow process.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I like how you quote the uh, attorney and professor – Leo Tolstoy, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Yeah, And you discuss that and solve that in this book,
6: right? <laughs> yeah, I try to. In any event, there's not very—the the, the one thing I can say, I do say in the book, is that the donors who want to solve their families' uh, interpersonal problems by putting their getting their kids involved in in philanthropy are barking up on the wrong tree. Okay. It has Wisdom. never happened. <laughs>
3: Joel Fleischman, thank you very much. Joel Fleischman is going to join me on television. uh, As well, Joel Fleischman, professor of public policy and law at Duke University and the author of the new book, Putting Wealth to Work, Philanthropy for Today or Investing for Tomorrow. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gurra and Tom Keane in New York.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews